Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Goyal. The date was April 16th, 2002, when the world changed forever for everyone with or at risk for aortic stenosis. Literally everyone everywhere. This is when Alain Cribier performed the very first TAVR. In the pre-TAVR era, the inoperable with severe aortic stenosis had no options, committed to a short and limited life. Now we all but take it for granted. But what were the events that led to this life-saving innovation of tectonic proportions? And how did this TAVR technology evolve from being plan B in the inoperable to an option for the low risk? Like Dr. Samir Kapadia of the Cleveland Clinic has said, maybe we should no longer be thinking of SAVR versus TAVR in terms of surgical risk, but rather in terms of TAVR risk. And finally, where are we headed? Join us for this captivating discussion as Dr. John Riesar, Director of Interventional Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, leads us through the storied past and promising future of TAVR. This discussion was planned by Dr. Jackie Latina, Interventional and Structural Cardiology Fellow at Johns Hopkins, and Dr. Tommy Das. General Cardiology Fellow at the Clinton Clinic and Program Director for the Cardiners Academy. Audio editing was performed by Cardiners intern and student doctor Shivani Reddy. This episode was brought to you in celebration and recognition of Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day, February 22nd, 2022, in collaboration with the Alliance for Aging Research. Remember everyone, Cardiners is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. If you enjoyed the show, please be a nerd and spread the word. Tell your friends, share online, and rate us on your preferred podcast app. And now, it's time to get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. February 22nd is Heart Valve Awareness Day, and it's a day dedicated to the raising awareness about heart failure diseases with an aim to increase recognition of the specific risks and symptoms of heart valve disease, improve detection and treatment, and ultimately save lives. We cardio nerds couldn't think of a better way to do just that by partnering with the Alliance for Aging Research and talking about aortic stenosis in the elderly. And we have the perfect faculty expert to take us through this revolutionary story of aortic stenosis and how we understand it and treat it today. The faculty expert is none other than our mentor, Dr. John Riesar. But before we welcome Dr. Riesar formally to the episode, I am delighted to welcome the Cardio Nerds Academy Program Director, Cleveland Clinic Cardiology Fellow, and inaugural Chief Fellow of House Thomas, and co-chair of the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, Dr. Tommy Das. Tommy, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for that warm introduction, Dan, and I'm just so excited for the conversation that we're about to have here. Now, it's my privilege to welcome back the fellow lead for this episode and Dan's amazing co-fellow in the Structural Heart Disease Program at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Jackie Latina. You may remember Jackie from episode 34, Interventional Cardiology and Heart Failure with Dr. Jeffrey Moses. Jackie hails from the suburbs of Boston, MA. She's a proud grad of Princeton University, she earned her MD at Tufts, internal medicine residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in the Big Apple, AHA postdoctoral research fellowship, as well as a master's in clinical research methods at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health during that time. She went on to join the Hopkins Heart Team for her cardiology, interventional fellowship, and social heart disease fellowships. As if all that wasn't enough, she's also the proud mom of the amazing Teddy. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Tommy. And as Dan mentioned, we are so excited to discuss aortic stenosis in the elderly with the myth the man, the legend, John Rezar. Dr. Rezar received his medical degree from the Medical College of Wisconsin and completed fellowships in cardiovascular disease and interventional cardiology at Johns Hopkins Hospital. 
where he serves as the director of the Adult Cardiac Cath Lab and serves as a professor of medicine. He's been a pioneer in percutaneous management of coronary artery disease and structural heart disease. Finally, Dr. Rezar and I are both self-described foodies and passionate about our pups. Dr. Rezar, welcome to our special Valve Day episode, and we are thrilled to hear your perspective as Tavers went from the outrageous to the routine. Thank you so much, Jackie, Dan, and Tommy. I've been privileged to experience many of the transformational breakthroughs in interventional cardiology, and these have been pioneered by such visionaries as Andreas Grunzig for balloon angioplasty, Sigvard Gianturco, Ruben, Palmas, and Schatz for coronary stentin, and likewise for today's topic of transcatheter valve replacement, Cribier, Anderson, Bonhoeffer, and Grube. To quote Isaac Newton, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And these are the giants of transcatheter valve therapy. And Dr. Arisari, it is an honor to have you today, as we mentioned, and also, you know, be part of the lineage of the people that you just mentioned. And it's almost hair-raising and goosebumps invoking when you think about all of the people that had to come before us with their brilliant ideas to take the field to where it is today. Dr. Risar, it is exceedingly obvious for those of us who work with you about how passionate you are about the field of interventional cardiology and structural heart disease. I mean, Dr. Risar, we know that you're having the best day when we see you running around the cath lab with baseline and post-taver hemodynamic tracings clutched tightly in your hands. But even more inspiring than your love for corrected hemodynamics are your structural heart disease clinic encounters. As I see your mood and smile gets just brighter and brighter when your patients return for their one month and one-year follow-ups feeling spectacular and with a renewed sense of living. Dr. Risar, can you just briefly tell us about how you chose this career path? Sure. I really don't want to focus on my journey since we have so much to discuss with respect to the evolution of transcatheter valve therapy. But my long-standing love of cardiovascular physiology was fostered by a phenomenal cardiovascular physiology department at the Medical College of Wisconsin that first attracted me to the field of cardiology. And then the love of what I call cognitive problem solving while working with my hands enticed me into interventional cardiology. You have to remember that I started my internship at Hopkins in 1985 during the heyday of thrombolytic therapy for management of acute MI. And it shortly followed Eric Topol's first administration of TPA to a patient during his Hopkins cardiology fellowship. This, of course, was coupled with the rapid growth of transcatheter coronary therapies, and I think this clinched my desire to pursue interventional cardiology as a career. That sounds like a really exciting time, Dr. Rizar. So let's take it back to the 1990s, back when Pop-Tarts were still popular and new kids on the block were still new. And let's meet our first patient, Mr. Quincy Quartz. So Mr. Quartz is 87 years old. He has stage 3 chronic kidney disease and some hypertension. He was otherwise previously healthy, active, independent. But over the last several months, he's developed some shortness of breath with exertion. This has been worsening over the past several weeks, and he's had difficulty climbing one flight of stairs. His transthoracic echo showed a mean aortic gradient of 43 millimeters of mercury with a valve area of 0.8 centimeters squared and preserved LV function. So back in the 1990s, what happened to patients like Quincy Quartz? Indeed, Quincy Quartz was a very difficult patient to manage in the pre-TAVR era. Many of these patients were left untreated 
after they weighed the often prolonged and arduous recovery that would be required following cardiac surgery. I remember a former president of the AHA and medical school dean who underwent SAVR at Hopkins at the age of 90, and it took six months for him to recover, and he never really regained his prior functionality that we now routinely expect our TAVR patients to achieve today. And it's also true that cardiac surgeons, because of the difficult recovery, we're not keen on operating on very elderly patients. So with respect to aortic valvuloplasty for aortic stenosis, remember that this was an option that uh, was built on the foundation of pulmonary valvuloplasty that was first published by Gene Kahn and Bob White at Hopkins in 1982 and mitral valvuloplasty in 1984. Professor Alain Cribier performed the first balloon aortic valvuloplasty for senile calcific aortic valve stenosis in 1986. And I have to tell you that BAV was touted as a dramatic step forward in the management of patients with severe calcific aortic valve stenosis who are not suitable for surgical aortic valve replacement. Indeed, I remember a renowned interventional cardiologist who will go unnamed on this podcast, who declared at a national scientific meeting that it was unethical to perform a randomized trial of BAV because it was clear that it was so very efficacious. Well, obviously based on multiple registry studies, it wasn't all that efficacious due to a prohibitively high Restenosis rate. This will be revisited in a more contemporaneous trial, the Partner B trial, wherein more than 85% of the control arm underwent BAV, and this had absolutely no impact on the long term dismal prognosis of untreated severe symptomatic aortic valve stenosis. So not only was BAV hampered by a high restenosis rate, there was a finite stroke rate and peripheral vascular complications were not infrequent in the era before arterial closure devices became available. So valvuloplasty was primarily used for those with ambulatory class four or hospitalized decompensated heart failure symptoms who were not surgical candidates. I think Mr. Quincy Quartz would have probably been treated medically without BAV since he was an outpatient, without decompensated heart failure, but he would have had a pretty dismal prognosis and half of these patients die within two years. Dr. Rezar, thank you for laying out that background. And I, I can't imagine what it must have been like back in 1986. You know, Dr. Kabir comes out with the concept of BAV and like you mentioned, all this excitement that we're going to be able to treat these elderly patients who aren't a candidate for SAVR. And then as the data comes out, realizing that really wasn't the case, that it wasn't going to alter the natural history of calcific AS and there was all this procedural morbidity. And I can't imagine what it was like to have all that excitement go in a completely different way. And as you mentioned, for a long time, BAV was really seen as the palliative treatment and really the only thing we could do to provide some relief for these patients who needed some short-term symptomatic relief in patients who were elderly and weren't a candidate for surgery. 
But, you know, we've come a long way since 1986. And Jackie, can you share the next chapter in the transcatheter aortic valve story? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tommy. In 1999, Dr. Marty Leon and Elaine Cribier and others got together and formed the Percutaneous Valve Technologies, which got to work designing a balloon expandable prosthetic heart valve. So Professor Cribier performed the first transcatheter aortic valve implantation in a human in 2002, which was via transeptal approach in a 57-year-old patient who had critical calcific aortic valve stenosis, cardiogenic shock, and subacute limb ischemia as sort of a compassionate use in someone who was clearly not a surgical candidate. Apparently then the French government gave him permission to continue the compassionate use of this transcatheter aortic valve implantation in a small number of patients. One month mortality was around 20% and there was a very high rate of paravalvular leak. But Dr. Rezar, by this time, you had been on faculty at Hopkins for around 10 years or so and had already sort of developed some expertise in this area. And do you think that Professor Cribier was crazy to do the first TAVI in humans? Or was there excitement or sort of skepticism in the interventional cardiology community? So the report of the first transcatheter aortic valve replacement was like a lightning bolt in the interventional cardiology community. But as we alluded to earlier, as with all science, there was a long history even before the first patient was treated. So just allow me to go a little bit deeper into this. In 1989, Henning Anderson speculated that a balloon expandable valve, similar to a coronary stent, but obviously larger, with a porcine aortic valve could be inserted into the aortic position and he obtained a patent for this concept. Professor Cribier continued these studies, but as he tells the story, he met considerable resistance from device companies. He would propose that aortic valve stenosis could be treated with a transcatheter device, and they would nod their heads and then turn to their surgical consultants who had tremendous skepticism that the aortic valve calcification could be displaced to allow for functional valve seating. And they had additional concerns about the crimping of the biological leaflets onto a stent scaffolding and that this would permanently damage the leaflets. So this type of scenario continued for five years. And then as Jackie outlined, eventually Cribier and others, including Marty Leon, acquired the patent and then formed the startup company named PVT in 1999. So this was the first valve then that was deployed in 2002. Well, PVT was acquired by Edwards Life Sciences in 2004, and then the Cribier Edwards valves with annulus diameters of 23 and 26 millimeters with introducer sheaths of 22 and 24 French were developed. So also, as Jackie pointed out, the first deployment route was a transeptal approach, creating an arterial venous rail. And this was unfortunately occasionally associated with damage to the mitral valve leaflets. And then the first retrograde aortic approach with the deflectable pusher sheath was done by John Webb in Vancouver, who also pioneered the transapical approach with his surgical colleagues. Contemporaneous with this was the concept of a self-expanding valve that became a reality when the core valve company was founded in 2001 
And this device, a self-expanding valve, was first performed by Eberhard Grube in 2005. This was initially a 25 French delivery system that then was decreased to 21 French and eventually 18 French in 2007. And both the Edward Sapien valve and the core valve obtained CE mark in 2007 and entered the European market. And then it was at this point in 2009 with the 18 French system that core valve was acquired by Medtronic. It was also within this era that the development of the heart team was recognized to be exceedingly important in the management of these patients. And this involved close collaboration with cardiac surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and imaging specialists, both in terms of evaluating the patients, doing extensive pre-procedural planning, and of course, performing the procedure together. You know, Tommy reflected earlier on the whiplash that people felt, you know, with the excitement and then dissipation of the excitement with the balloon babuloplasty experience. And even more so, you know, like just like looking at the mind of Professor Crevier, you know, with this initial success of the BAV and this is touted as something that's going to change the world, but then recognizing that failure of the BAV and then pushing further despite all of the resistance he encountered is something that we could just see that humility and then, you know, that pivot to develop something that actually is what ended up proving to be very beneficial. So Dr. Risar, thanks for sharing your first impressions of transcatheter aortic valve implantation, both in tech and then also in highlighting collaboration regarding the heart team, which is just such a valuable resource today for such patients. It's really incredible to hear about the cardiology community landscape in the early 2000s. So Jackie, the field has grown in leaps and bounds since then, obviously. The Hopkins Fellowship has opened up two structural spots, which we both were lucky enough to get this year. And now we're offering TAVR to patients at all levels of risk. How do we go from first in human TAVR in prohibitive surgical risk to finally low risk patients that we offer TAVR to now? I know it's been an amazing trajectory. So Dan, hold your horses a little bit, though. We've got a lot of steps to go through before we get to the current era of TAVR. Let's go back a little bit to 2004 when Edwards acquired the percutaneous valve technologies. And then they got to work designing and rolling out the partner trial, which started enrolling patients in 2007. And at the same time, Medtronic was working on their self-expanding core valve high-risk trial. And the first human implant of core valve was in 2005 which was novel as compared to the balloon expandable, it was self-expanding. And then Medtronic acquired it in 2009. So we know that the first part of the partner trial, the cohort B patients, looked at 358 patients in 21 centers who were not considered to be surgical candidates at all. So these were the extreme risk patients, and their mean age was 83 years young, two-thirds of whom had coronary disease, 40% of them had COPD. Their mean STS scores were 11 to 12%, so really high risk. And the outcomes were published in the New England Journal in 2010, and they showed that TAVR really blew away the standard therapy, which was medical therapy essentially, but cut in half the primary composite outcome of death from any cause or repeat hospitalization at two years with a hazard ratio of 0.46. And just looking at death from any cause, which is a really important outcome, obviously, in TAVI compared to standard therapy was 0.55. So this was really, really remarkable. And not only highlights the efficacy of TAVR, but it also highlights the futility of medical therapy. So 
more than half of these patients in the control arm had died by 24 months. And TAVR unfortunately did show that there were more strokes and major vascular complications. So every TAVI trial thereafter had a neurology adjudicated stroke endpoint. So Dr. Rezar, Mr. Quartz's 92-year-old brother-in-law, Mr. Harry Harsbergite, also has severe aortic stenosis, and he's being considered for TAVR. So what was the procedure like at this time, and how would you convey procedural risk to these patients back in the mid-2000s, the early TAVRs? Yeah, so, you know, the only way for him to be treated at this point, and we're talking 2007, 2008, of course, was enrollment into the partner trial in the United States. And, you know, these procedures were large bore, 22 and 24 French. So the valve delivery via iliofemoral axis, because of the 22 and 24 French delivery system required an eight millimeter iliofemoral vessel. The other option, of course, was transapical access. And, you know, centers became exceedingly proficient at transapical access. Now, we know that in the end, this doesn't turn out to be as good as iliofemoral delivery. But if you didn't have iliofemoral access, centers became very proficient at transapical access, and it provided a way to treat many of these patients. They were generally done by vascular cut down with CCU admission afterwards, and length of stay tended to be in excess of five to seven days. And as Jackie mentioned, you know, the stroke rate raised a red flag with the FDA, and they were very concerned about the stroke rate. And thus, in all of the subsequent trials, not only did they have some component of neurology adjudication, but they, in fact, included major stroke as one of the composite endpoints. So that was a critical change in terms of the orientation of how we could manage these patients without obviously causing a debilitating stroke. That's very helpful, Dr. Risar. And again, hard to imagine using such large French sizes and vascular cutdowns on every case and transapical access today when like over 95 or 99% of the tavers that we do are with uh, ultrasound guided vascular access and transfemoral. So it's really remarkable. You know, Going back to Hopkins, we participated in the Medtronic Core Valve U.S. Pivotal Trial starting in 2010, which was before my time coming to Hopkins in 2014. But that ultimately enrolled 1,400 participants with a mean age of 83 years. That must have been a very exciting time to offer this new option to patients or at least to be enrolled in the trial. Dr. Isar, can you speak a little bit about the experience being involved in this trial, leading this trial, and how did the counseling process go for patients and families during this era? So yes, Dan, participating in the Medtronic Pivotal Core Valve Trials was very exciting. The Core Valve Trials were structured both for extreme risk. Now, based on the Partner B data, the FDA did not require a control arm. So in light of the absolute mortality reduction of 20% in the TAVR arm compared to control, the Core Valve Extreme Risk Trial was designed as a single arm study to be compared to a performance goal of a 43% event rate at one year for mortality 
and major stroke. So again, note the incorporation of major stroke as one of the components of the primary endpoint. The major step forward with the core valve trials was the use of multi-slice CT sizing for valve selection. So remember that with the partner trials, sizing was largely done by transesophageal echo. And as we know, echocardiography consistently undersizes the true valve size. And because of the core valve series of trials, the multi-slice CT became the standard. There was also increased emphasis on hemodynamics. And you know how much I love hemodynamics. So we were very particular in obtaining hemodynamics pre and post ABR and trying to optimize those hemodynamics, you know, looking at the aortic regurgitation index and those types of measures. The other important consideration to remember is that the core valve is a supraannular valve design compared to the intraannular position of the sapien valves. And this, you know, does lead to some potential advantages in terms of a gradient and, and perhaps as, as we'll see with leaflet thrombosis. Iliofemoral axis was the predominant mode of delivery. Uh, these were 18 French delivery systems, again, requiring a seven to eight millimeter iliofemoral arterial tree. But we also, instead of transapical, used direct aortic axis and then axillary subclavian axis. So concurrent with this core valve extreme risk trial, there was also the core valve high risk trial. And in this trial, we enrolled patients with an STS score of greater than 8% and also included, which was novel, incremental risk factors not represented by the STS risk score. And we know that there are limitations to the STS risk score wherein porcelain aorta and frailty. So frailty became a very, very important metric to look at in these patients and liver disease, for example. So all of these significantly impact recovery from surgery and affect a long-term prognosis. So the high-risk core valve trial randomized 795 patients to TABR versus SAVR by intention to treat. So by intention to treat, obviously, there was, with approval of the Edward Sapien valve in 2010 for extreme risk patients, there was dropout of some of these patients who were randomized to surgery. And this occurred in about 9% of patients. And this often engendered lengthy discussions with patients, that patients were often very disappointed at being randomized to the surgical arm of the study. And, you know, with the FDA approval of the Edward Sapien valve in 2010 for extreme risk patients, there was a tremendous amount of patient interest in transcatheter valve therapy in lieu of open cardiac surgery. So the results of that core valve high-risk trial are very significant. This was the first time that a transcatheter procedure was shown to be superior to surgery. One year, all-cause mortality or major stroke with SAVR was 26.4% versus 18.2% with TAVR. And there was also superior hemodynamics, so single-digit TAVR gradients 
that were consistently lower than SAVR gradients, albeit with more PVL. In this trial, 7% had moderate or more with essentially none with SAVR. This obviously needed to be addressed. And if we were going to extend this therapy to lower risk patients, there had to be an iteration of the valve design. We then moved on to intermediate risk patients. So for the Edwards group, it was the Partner 2 Sapien XT device with a trial of patients with STS greater than 4%. And for Medtronic, the Sertavi trial, a surgical risk of 3 to 8%. And we now have five-year data for Sertavi showing that the rate of all-cause mortality or disabling stroke is not different between TAVR and SAVR. So we're beginning to push the envelope on some of those questions of durability. So within this context, then there was obviously an evolution of valve technology. And on the Edwards side, there was the development of a Sapien 3 valve with a skirt. And on the Medtronic side, a pericardial wrap. And also on the Medtronic device, an ability to recapture and resheath the valve to allow positioning of the valve in the best possible position. So then with these third and fourth iteration devices, the low-risk trials were presented simultaneously at the American College of Cardiology Scientific meeting in 2019. And following the presentation of these studies, you know, the audience gave a standing ovation to the presenters. So if you can imagine the enthusiasm, the evolution, the history that we came from, you know, from 2002 to presenting data of low-risk patients. And just briefly, you know, the Edwards Partner 3 trial, the low-risk study, the primary endpoint at two years, mortality, stroke, and hospitalization was 11.5% with TAVR versus 17.4% with surgery. And although the differences in stroke and death favoring TAVR at one year were not statistically significant at two years, they, again, this was really a major, major step forward. Now, there was some signal of valve thrombosis in two years that was increased in the TAVR arm, 2.6% versus surgery, 0.7%. But the health status in these patients continued to be better after TAVR versus surgery through two years. Likewise, the Medtronic low-risk trial, the primary endpoint of all-cause mortality or disabling stroke, at 24 months with 5.3% for TAVR and 6.7% for SAVR. So, you know, these are really phenomenal results and lead us to today's current standards where the 30-day all-cause mortality should be less than 2%, major disabling strokes, again, less than 2%, vascular complications, less than 2 to 3%. A consistent observation has been an increased need for new and permanent pacemakers. Now, with the cusp overlap technique with Medtronic and improved deployment with the Sapien 3 and, and Sapien line of valves, you know, this 
is probably in the range of five to 10%. And with the skirt and the wrap, uh, moderate to severe paravalvular regurgitation should really be zero. I mean, no patient should leave the cath lab with moderate paravalvular regurgitation. So what a transformational technology. Dr. Rieser, that's just amazing to hear about the real history of this technology from someone who lived it, right? When I started training, all this stuff was done. Like TAVR was an accepted standard of care. And to think about all these iterative steps and the scientific rigor it takes to take a technology from its infancy as an idea, you know, Alain Cribier thinking about doing stints in the aorta to something that we can offer to people on a regular basis is so exciting. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to have been there when you deployed your first TAVR valve and what that must have been like in the room and, you know, as trials progressed and you got to feel about, yes, this is something that we're offering patients that's really improving their outcomes and improving their quality of life. And it's just wonderful that we can really extend and improve the quality of life for patients and elderly patients like Quincy Quartz and Harry Hartsburgite and these people who previously had just a 50% chance, a 50-50 shot of death in their first two years after diagnosis of severe AS. You know, that's not the end of the TAVR story, and there's still a lot to be learned about and to be seen. So, Jackie, can you tell us a little bit about where TAVR goes from here and what are the next steps? Well, Tommy, I think the next 10 years will be really exciting. For younger patients, will TAVR become the default over surgery? I don't think we necessarily know the answer to that yet, but we'll always need our friendly cardiac surgery colleagues for surgical approaches to the aortic valve in many situations, like bicuspid aortic valve disease and other situations that are beyond the scope of this discussion. You know, that's exactly right, Jackie. We will definitely always need our cardiac surgeons, not just for surgical aortic valve implantation, but for that heart team and that collaborative experience when dealing with valvular disease in general. So many nuances and so many things that require really a comprehensive thought process. You know, you just have to have the specialties work together, and that also includes cardiac anesthesia as well. So, Speaking of cardiac surgery, you know, the issue of coronary disease along with aortic stenosis is a really a fascinating one and a challenging one. It really comes up frequently in our assessment of our particularly elderly patients with concurrent or concomitant coronary artery disease. Take Ms. Marl Uwalite, who is an 81-year-old woman with severe aortic stenosis who presented with primarily dyspnea on exertion, but also has a moderate amount of angina when she's tending to her garden that you tease out as you continue to talk to her in clinic. She ends up undergoing coronary angiography as part of her workup for valvular replacement, which demonstrates a focal calcified 95% stenosis in the proximal right coronary artery. Dr. Risar, can you discuss your decision-making algorithm for who gets coronary revascularization prior to TAVR? Does age make a difference in your decision to revascularize? And if so, how? So that's a very interesting question, Dan. And this has evolved over the course of the last 10 to 12 years. So remember, as we started the TAVR trials in elderly patients, high-risk, extreme-risk patients, the prevalence of coronary disease in this patient population was quite high, perhaps as high as 80%, as compared to 10 to 15% in more recent low-risk trials. And as those studies were designed with input from our cardiac surgery colleagues who knew that revascularization with bypass grafting was important in reducing mortality in patients undergoing surgical aortic valve replacement. So that concept then was incorporated into the early trials of transcatheter aortic valve replacement, that 
required coronary angiography before consideration of TAVR versus SAVR and PCI of proximal and mid lesions in major coronary arteries was strongly recommended. And concomitant uh, bypass grafting if the patient was randomized to surgery. We've kind of gone full circle now, and revascularization prior to TAVR has been de-emphasized, except for critical stenoses in proximal large vessels. And the, the crude dichotomization of CAD versus no CAD has been refined. And I think we have to look at the, you know, the syntax score of these patients. And in general, if someone has a greater than 70 to 80% stenosis in a proximal major epicardial vessel or left main, as long as the risk of the procedure does not outweigh the benefit, then, you know, we tend to proceed with revascularization. And I also think the clinical presentation is important. If exertional angina is a prominent symptom in these patients, then I'm more inclined to proceed with revascularization. And obviously, if they present with acute ischemic syndrome, that's another obvious setting for revascularization. And the whole issue of, you know, staged versus TAVR plus PCI is a very institutional dependent discussion. So I also think it's important to recognize that concomitant severe triple vessel disease and aortic valve stenosis in a patient who is a good surgical candidate should strongly weigh toward surgery rather than TAVR plus multivessel PCI, especially in, in younger patients. So prior to TAVR, obviously we're dealing with surgical valves. And when we make a recommendation to a patient for a valve replacement, we think about mechanical valves being sort of a almost permanent solution for the patient, which requires long-term anticoagulation versus bioprosthetic valves, which are potentially less durable. We often quote 10 to 15 years of durability, but they do not require long-term anticoagulation. Right, Jackie, that's such a great point. So Dr. Reesar, when you decide to pursue TAVR, you have sidestepped the discussion about mechanical valves and mandatory anticoagulation. However, this then brings up the question about durability of TAVR valves, the antiplatelet or anticoagulation regimen that you choose for patients post-TAVR, and finally, questions about subclinical or clinical leaflet thrombosis. How do you process these things? So that's a very interesting question. And indeed, the durability issue, I think, remains unanswered. Now, we do have data now extending out to eight and nine years in some of these patients that is very encouraging. And then the other observation has been made is the whole issue of subclinical leaflet thrombosis. Now, this was first brought to light by Raj Makar in reference to the portico valve. And with CT imaging and with transesophageal echo, leaflet thrombosis was identified. And, you know, these phenomena of leaflet thrombosis and reduced leaflet motion have been described, you know, across multiple different TAVR valves and indeed in surgical bioprostheses. In one study, three to four months after TAVR or SAVR, leaflet thrombosis was present in 30% of the transcatheter valves and 28% of the surgical valves. 
So, you know, this is obviously disconcerting and the standard therapy at our institution and in the clinical trials is that if there wasn't an indication for anticoagulation, that um, generally aspirin and clopidogrel were used. Now, a recent meta-analysis in JAK intervention showed that with the current generation of valves that the median incidence of subclinical leaflet thrombosis was in the range of 6%. There was also the interesting observation that intraannular valves were associated with a twofold greater risk for the development of leaflet thrombosis compared with the use of supraannular valves. So there's some issue in terms of, you know, flow dynamics and being annular versus supraannular that has a role in this. So the meta-analysis also showed that in those patients who had an indication-based use of oral anticoagulation, that there is a lower risk of subclinical leaflet thrombosis compared to either a single antiplatelet agent or a dual antiplatelet agent. And then switching to oral anticoagulation seemed to be efficacious for this resolution. So we just don't know what the impact of this leaflet thrombosis is long-term in these patients with respect to durability. And there has been evidence that subleaflet thrombosis does increase the odds of stroke or transient ischemic attack in the population. But I think further studies are needed to investigate, you know, what's the role of screening tests for leaflet thrombosis and what the appropriate antithrombotic therapy is. It is interesting that if one goes toward oral anticoagulation routinely, if you remember the Galileo trial of a direct factor 10 inhibitor, rivaroxaban, showed that there was a higher risk of death or thromboembolic complications and a higher risk of bleeding than compared to an antiplatelet strategy. Likewise, Atlantis showed similar higher rates of death with apixaban. But interestingly, both of these trials showed that the anticoagulation arm had less leaflet thrombosis than the antiplatelet arm. So currently, you know, we've been basing our practice on the popular TAVI trial, which showed no difference in MACE at 90 days with aspirin versus aspirin plus clopidogrel, but a significantly lower rate of bleeding. So that data, in the absence, again, of another indication for oral anticoagulation, most commonly atrial fibrillation, a single antiplatelet agent, aspirin, is now our practice at Hopkins. You know, it's so interesting to, to think about how, despite all we know about TAVR and TAVI, that there's still these areas of active investigation and there's so much nuance in terms of how we take care of these patients, even after the valve is implanted, you know, what are we thinking about the medications they have to be on and how do we lower their risk going forward? It's exciting as someone who's interested in this field to see all these different areas of active investigation and areas that are not quite settled yet. It really makes you want to look at the literature and look at what we still need to find out and really push the field forward. So I want to pivot a little bit here and discuss TAVR in a, some special patient populations. And one in particular that I think we see often is patients with multivalvular disease. So I want to take a hypothetical patient, let's say Miss Greta Granite. She's an 88-year-old woman, and she not only has severe symptomatic stenosis with recurrent emissions for heart failure, but she's also got severe MR and severe TR. 
And for these reasons, she's been considered a prohibitive risk for surgery. So Dr. Rezar, if this patient comes to your clinic, what's your strategy for her? Do you start by fixing the AS and seeing if the MR improves? Do you then proceed to a transcatheter edge-to-edge repair if, if the MR doesn't improve? What's your thought process for someone here with multivascular disease? So right, Tommy, this is a very common patient scenario that we see daily in the, the structural heart clinic. So as you suggest, I think we take aortic stenosis off of the table first. I mean, that's the valvular abnormality that has the most morbid prognosis. And then, you know, we put them on guideline-directed medical therapy and assess the residual mitral or tricuspid regurgitation. Now, in the absence of intrinsic mitral valve disease, the MR will generally improve. And if it doesn't, and there's still moderate to severe MR on guideline-directed medical therapy, then those are the patients that we treat with mitroclin. Likewise, with respect to tricuspid regurgitation, we now have several research trials of tricuspid valve therapy, including transcatheter valve replacement and edge-to-edge repair. Yeah, Dr. Riso, that is truly exciting. And again, it's always a challenge when you have multivalvular disease and patients who obviously can't undergo cardiac surgery, or at least there's a strong preference not to undergo cardiac surgery for whatever reason and addressing, you know, the lesion that's going to give the most impact and then proceeding from there on. You know, one final discussion point here, if I may, I know that at Hopkins, we have successfully performed the tavern at least one person over the age of 100. And although centenarians are rare, this is actually a rapidly growing population. Nonagenarians and centenarians can paradoxically have greater resilience and fewer comorbidities because they've made it to that age than sometimes even younger patients. And we've all experienced these kinds of patients anecdotally. We say, she looks like she's 90, but she's got the heart of a 50-year-old and she's just winning at life and I want her genes, something like that. So philosophically, innovating in structural heart disease has been really fast-paced, and we've talked about it almost dizzying in a way, and we've pushed all sorts of boundaries. But is there such a thing as going too far, and when should we temper our enthusiasm and know our limits? Dan, this is a a very important discussion point, and as you know, in our valve clinic, you know, we deal with this on a daily basis. When I discuss this with elderly patients, you know, they're concerned about their ability to function independently. You know, in general, they're not concerned about dying, but they don't want to become a burden on their family and they want to maintain a sense of independence. Now, my oldest patient was 102 and she had a miserable quality of life. She had been in and out of the hospital almost weekly with heart failure. And we performed a TAVR, and she lived for another year with a good quality of life, and she was never readmitted to the hospital. So I think this discussion, you know, really revolves around a patient's functional status and quality of life, and it's not age alone. You know, that's why talking to patients and seeing them in clinic is so, so extremely important. And You know, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, when we had to switch to telemedicine, it was often very difficult to assess a patient's functionality and independence on a telemedicine visit, as opposed to seeing them in clinic with the proverbial eyeball test. 
Wow. Well, this is a really super exciting time to be a structural interventional cardiologist, and I am thrilled to have this specialized training. And I look forward to all the solutions in years to come for elderly patients as this population continues to grow. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. And thank you so much, Dr. Risar and Dan. And it's just a real treat for me as a general fellow to be able to hear all of you guys talk about TAVR and where we were, where we are now, and where we're going. I think what I really take away from this is that from the palliative BAV days to the modern post-Partner 3 era, so much about this is being able to offer something for our patients, right? And Dr. Rezar, I think the points you made at the end there about the importance of knowing the patient and knowing what's important to them and their functionality is going to drive your decision making. And that is so true when taking care of an elderly patient and so true taking care of patients with advanced valvular disease. I just really think that's an awesome message to end on. And I'm really thankful for all of you guys for letting me be a part of the conversation today. 